This is IT Visionaries, your number one source for actionable insights and exclusive interviews with CIOs, CTOs, and CISOs, and many more. I'm your host, Albert Chow, a former CIO, former sales VP, and now podcast host. I tried to take the easy path of like, let me go help invest in people. And then I realized we need more clinicians who are recognizing the problem and are willing to step out fully as I did, or in part as many other physician entrepreneurs have done to be part of the solution. Sometimes to solve a big problem, you got to personally take it on. Meet Lucienne Ide, and she has applied her curiosity and capabilities to a suite of industries and challenges. She's worked for the NSA. She's worked in finance. She's become a physician. And these were all steps along the way to help her get to where she's at today, which is the founder and CEO of a health tech software company called Remedy. Her unique seat as a physician turned founder means she knows the doctor's perspective, which is often neglected in healthcare tech. And it's the primary focus at Remedy. Learn why this is so important right now on IT Visionaries. Lucien Ide, welcome to the show. Thank you. Listen, right out the gate, your company's based in health tech. I love health tech. Anyone who's listened to our show for a while knows that. But before we get too far into it, could you please tell our audience what is Remedy and what does it do? Sure. So Remedy is a software company and we have built a clinical management platform to help clinicians, doctors, nurses, pharmacists manage chronic health conditions using data from the electronic health record, data from that patient when they're in the home to really help make that next best decision about every individual and support their initiative to provide the best care across their whole population. No, that is awesome. And you know, one of the things that we are always learning about is this idea of like connected devices and how they're going to impact health. It sounds like you're more on the practitioner side, right? Is that what how it works? It's like you're connecting with different, let's say, IoT health devices, constantly bringing that data back to, let's say, my primary care physician so they can understand my current health status or outcomes at any given time. Is that how it works? Yeah, you got it. So we, you know, we sell enterprise software as a service offering to clinics, big health systems, and some of the data we consume is from those devices that we as consumers, we as patients, all of us might have in the home, right? A scale, a blood pressure cuff, a glucose meter, we're consuming all of that data, presenting it back to the doctor, nurse in their workflow. So one of the things, you know, in doing our homework about you, you definitely have a background for this, but I wanted you to share your background with our audience because it's so fascinating. You are without a doubt our first CEO or first guest period that is from the NSA. <laughs> uh, you are NSA, you are a physician, or I don't know exactly best describe. I, I don't know my medical sure. degrees, but you were a doc- you were oh, a doctor, <laughs> and now you're a tech CEO. Give us a walk through that. You know, obviously, you were young in your career. You wanted to go and do what? What brought you to the NSA? How did you get in health? I mean, we got to walk this path because it's so fascinating. Yeah. So my first job out of college was being a signals analyst at the NSA. And I did that because I was a total geek in college. Like my senior thesis in physics was on the electromagnetic spectrum in Vermont, right? Like who, you know. Yeah, I don't know what that is. (laughs) It's like listening to all of the electromagnetic waves out there and figuring out what they are, right? What's a radio wave? What are communications? And cataloging and explaining all that. So 
I was, I was really a geek. And so <laughs> the NSA, I went and was a signals analyst. So sort of like that movie Snowden, that kind of stuff. Right. Okay. And, you know, I went there, I think cause sort of the, you know, thread throughout my career is I'm always looking at like, what are problems I can work on that make a difference? And that felt like a place where I could make a difference through being a scientist. So I spent about three years working in national intelligence as an engineer physicist, and then went to work for venture capital fund, investing in communications technologies, like in the late nineties, that was a lot of fun. I was their subject matter expert on satellite and mobile communications, but I really missed science. And I decided it was time to go back to graduate school. I was interested in healthcare. It was like science with people. I thought I would have a career in academia. So did a joint MD, PhD. My PhD work is in gene therapy. Went on to train clinically in OBGYN. In that clinical care, became really interested in like, what a terrible job we do of using data in healthcare. Mm. And so that's what sort of brought me full circle is it was right at the time that all of our health records were being digitized, right? Going from paper to electronic health records for the first time. And it was such a miss. So much promise of digitizing that data and such little thought into the interfaces to those systems and how clinicians use them and how it impacts the workflow and the way that doctors engage with patients. And you've probably experienced that, right? You go to your doctor and they're staring at the computer screen more than they're looking you in the eye because they're having to do all this data entry. So... I want you to explain for us why that is, or I guess how it is, because we as patients have been there. We've been to the doctor where you feel like they should know more about you, but they seemingly don't. And they have to look up your record, even though you've been there before. Sometimes you're filling out long paper forms, which then get handed to a person who I guess like keys them in, keys that information in. And we know it doesn't transfer, even moving locally, right? If I moved from a townhouse to a normal house and I was changing towns, but not cities, but like there was no way to get my medical record there. It was, it was a kind of a complicated process. (laughs) What's it like, I guess, from the doctor, the physician side, like you're on the other side of this, you're using all these tools and systems. Tell us what they're seeing. Tell us why it's, I guess, such a challenge. You know, I mean, I think the fundamental problem is that when we digitized all of these health records, we did it through the lens of how physicians get paid. Mm. We did it through the lens of this transactional lens of let's build a system that's going to capture the data to bill for that encounter. And that's really how most of those systems were architected. They weren't architected around a patient walks through the door. You know, what's the journey of this patient? How does the medical assistant or the nurse or the doctor or the pharmacist engage them? It's all around transaction. And so especially as you reference sort of like, why do they have to look up all your history? Why don't they, you know, why isn't the system feeding that up to them? They weren't built to be longitudinal systems that tell a story. Hmm. They were built to capture that transaction happening in that moment. And so it's frustrating on both sides. No doctor likes that when you as a patient ask them a question and they have to go click around 14 places to find the answer, knowing that you're sitting there thinking, why don't you know this about me Mm -hmm. already? Why am I having to ask? Why am I having to tell you? Why did I have to fill out that form for the hundredth time while sitting in the lobby? And so when you were sitting there as a doctor, it sounds like you you identified this opportunity or this problem, right? That you wanted to solve. What was your initial hypothesis, how this could be solved? Because of course, it's one thing to identify a problem, which I think, you know, many people are good at. Uh, <laughs> what people are bad at is identifying solutions. So what were you yeah. immediately thinking? Like, hey, this is a way to possibly get this done. 
My initial hypothesis was I should go back to venture capital and invest in people who will solve this problem. And <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's what I got, I think. Yeah. Like, I'm not the guy. <laughs> and, and so I actually did that. And I went to a fund and we started looking at companies and technologies. And then my conclusion was like, oh, this is that same problem that some of the technology being developed and the people building it don't have the the lens of the clinician or necessarily a patient-centric lens when they're designing these technologies. And we're going to keep making the same mistake. We're going to keep building things that we can, you know, it's kind of like the solution looking for a problem, right? I can build a technology that's super cool and integrates all this data, but if I don't understand in a very empathetic way, the problem that I'm trying to solve for that clinician, and I don't understand their workflow, I'm probably not going to build the right solution. So I I tried to take the easy path of like, let me go help invest in people. And then I realized we need more clinicians who are recognizing the problem and are willing to step out fully as I did, or in part as many other physician entrepreneurs have done to be part of the solutioning. There's kind of like this this moment for a lot of entrepreneurs when they're about to embark, then they sit, think to themselves, "Hey, I'm going to build this." Mm-hmm. What were you thinking you were going to build? What what was like your dream, I guess, interface or solution set that would or experience that a physician could then be like, "Yeah, this is optimized." I'll I'll say from the patient side, like we've all, I think everyone who listens to this podcast certainly has been a patient of somebody. I've gone out of my way sometimes to take a look at the whatever they're typing into, so. There's a lot of fields. I know that. Like there's yeah. a lot. Every yeah. I've never seen a doctor's software look like a consumer side software. It's like it feels it's very like 20 much years like, old. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of looks like it's made with Visual Basic. It kind of has a lot of re- just a lot of records. Like it reminds me of like maybe a PeopleSoft or an Oracle Circle or 2000. And I'm looking in there like there's so many fields. Each thing kind of like supporting what you said was kind of coded line by line. So it wasn't like a holistic picture of what I guess I did. You would have to read the summary of the all lines. So I mean, I'll use like a dental event because you know, that's the last thing I went to. Uh, the cleaning was one line. Uh, the x-rays were another line. I think my patient records might've been on another form. I don't know. Like I don't, it was just like, this is what you got treated with. What you just said makes total sense. Cause I bet you that's how they bill it. They just take this form and they bill it to the insurance company. What were you envisioning to say like, hey, I can change this if it looks like this? Yeah. So the vision was really, how do you get to a system that surfaces to the clinician the most important things for them to know and next steps for them to consider? You know, I'm really sensitive to and have utmost respect for sort of that patient-clinician relationship for the human element of medicine. And I, I don't think our goal should be to replace that. But just versus the time when I trained to today, you know, when I trained, we carried the little pocket guides, the pharmacopoeia and the Maxwell's medicine that sort of had the key things you needed to know about medicine. Like, can you imagine that? Right. We didn't have smartphones. (laughs) If someone pulled that out, I'd be nervous. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The amount of data that exists about any one of us as a patient And then imagine the amount of literature and evidence that's out there that might be relevant to the treatment of that patient makes the concept that I had 10 years ago seem kind of laughable and not as aspirational, right? But the concept was that these systems should be able to ingest all this data and present to the clinician, here's the most urgent need, the most important thing, here's where this patient would benefit from a change in medicine or needs an additional screening or look what's happening with them at home 
they're hypertensive here in the clinic and then they go home and their blood pressure is always fine. That's important data that clinician needs to know. So that was where I was coming from. And it's interesting to look back because we didn't have all this internet of things and connected devices back then. So it was really hard to achieve that, but that was the goal. You know, you you mentioned you were saying, hey, listen, how I can make a bigger impact is I'm going to go and become an investor or work on the investment side. And you met different technologists who were trying to work on, like you said, solutions looking for a problem to solve. And you said, hey, we need more physicians that are part of this process because they under, they understand the problem better. So what transformed for you to say, well, maybe I'll take my shot at this? We were taking a hard look at diabetes care and it's something as a clinician and as a scientist, I felt like we kind of understood pretty well, right? There's like, we spend a billion dollars a year of NIH funding on diabetes research. And I was floored by the financial aspect. That's something I really didn't understand through my medical training of like, how can we spend almost 4% of GDP on consequences of poorly managed diabetes? How is that possible? It's not a problem of scientific understanding, right? So I got really interested in that particular disease state from both a financial and a medical point of view. Met folks in the course of looking at interesting technologies and ideas to invest in, just had that realization of like, there's something here but I can't sit here and hope somebody else solves it. And we had some inputs on the technology side around sort of concepts from the artificial pancreas that, you know, is a medical device. If you think of it, right, it senses glucose and doses insulin like our pancreas does. Going back decades, people have been working on replicating that outside the human body. But that simple concept of I'm going to take in glucose data and figure out how much insulin to dose is a much more you know, you can extract that to a much bigger idea of a software system that takes in data and gives guidance of how to treat the patient. So I, I just became fascinated with that idea in diabetes care of, you know, it's unique. Patients test their blood glucose at home every day. Yeah, That's a huge burden. It's expensive. It hurts to prick your finger. It makes you maybe not feel good about yourself that the number isn't good and you don't know what to do about it. So it's kind of this constant negative reinforcement if your diabetes isn't well controlled and every day you're looking at that number. And I just thought there's, there's something here. There's all this data. There's all this evidence. If we can just bring those two things together in the right way and help the doctors do, you know, manage it, there's something there. Yeah. And I want to paint a picture for our audience. If, if you've never been around a person who has diabetes, my grandfather had it. So I remember being a kid, seeing him, uh, you know, check his blood sugar. He definitely took insulin shots each day. But one of the things, you know, looking back on it, I think is weird is, mainly because of what we now know today, like the insulin shot was always the same, like meaning same dosage. So, I mean, right, like there, there wasn't like, and, and I'm hearing, because I'm, I'm trying to listen between the lines of what you're saying. It sounds like it's like you could tailor that. It was always the same. There was not, there was like a, you measured your blood sugar. Like, I want to say you did it daily, mm-hmm. but I know, and we know now that blood sugar changes based on what you eat. Like that's, that's it. So it's not a consistent number every day. And I know this is a daily occurrence and there's a lot of downsides to not taking care of this. And then I've also read, but it's not shocking the way you like us dietary habits are forming is like, there's more cases of type two than ever before. You just mm-hmm. mentioned a number that it's 4% of GDP is just going to diabetes care. What do you see transforming before our eyes that technology is now going to enable? Because this is, this is clearly a massive problem. How is tech going to change this? Because I think back to like what you just said, the challenges are just living with like, so whether you're type two or type one diabetic, 
like your life is forever changed if you have diabetes. You will constantly be requiring some level of medical attention for yourself or someone's got to take care of you, uh, care for you in some way. And it's a life, like you said, it's a lifelong impact. How, how do you think technology is going to transform the way we care for diabetics? Very generally speaking, right, the transformation that, that we're all trying to get to is moving from being reactive to being more proactive about health management. So in the case of diabetes, as you said, they're sort of, for your grandfather, right, this like, you're going to take five units of insulin a day, right? That's a very yeah. poor proxy for what his pancreas was doing earlier in his life, right? And responding in the moment to glucose based on what he ate and everything else going on, stress, exercise. So, and it's very much sort of after the fact of like, whatever just happened in your body, you're going to inject this much insulin, right? We've gotten to a much you know, more sophisticated level of that today. So continuous glucose monitors that people wear on their body and they're sensing glucose every five minutes, that data feeding into a system that can help decide how much insulin to dose, right? So we're getting there to be able to sort of anticipate much more effectively and be more precise in the level of care. So I think that concept of proactive care and precision personalized care are kind of you can extrapolate that to the larger health system of what we're trying to get to, right? We're trying to prevent disease on the one hand, and then on the other hand, for people who, you know, do have a health condition like diabetes or hypertension or hyperlipidemia or heart failure, whatever, we're then trying to prevent the consequences as best we can by best managing those diseases. And the role of technology, a lot of it's in the data analytics and understanding, finding those people, right? We have a big diagnosis and management problem of just finding the patients who we need to dedicate the resource towards. And then once we know who they are, really throwing resources at that to tightly manage their health and not wait for them to walk through the door of our health system. That's the big criticism of US healthcare, right? We're a sick care system. We're not a healthcare system. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'd love to play out a scenario how this could potentially change. You know, think of people that maybe they get a blood test or something that says they're pre-diabetic. And I'll, I'll use myself because actually I did a blood test not too long ago and it suggested that my uh, insulin and triglyceride levels were getting to the point where they were like, hey, you might be pre-diabetic. And I immediately was like, okay, I got to change something. I got to mm -hmm. change right away. I know a lot of people don't think that they're going to will change or it's not a big deal or I, I, and I know that happens a lot of times, which is why type two keeps rising. Uh, but but yeah. in that moment, how can tech enabled health and monitoring systems, how, how can that help me? Because I can see a lot of things I can envision a way it would help, but I'd love to hear from your words. Like, what do you see? Because I immediately yeah. started changing the way I ate, but I don't, to your point, I don't actually know what was happening to myself inside until I went back for a blood test, you know, a couple months later. So if you take that scenario, right, and sort of play it out of like, how can tech help the healthcare delivery side of that? Because I do think this is always a partnership, right? You've got the healthcare side, the professionals, and you've got the patient. And so in that scenario where you get a, you know, hemoglobin A1C, it's like the measure of average blood glucose. It's a way that we screen for prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. So that lab test comes back and indicates that you're at risk of, you know, you're kind of inching up towards that threshold. Imagine that IT system sends you a notification, mm. a text message, right? A link. Let me explain to you your lab results. You click into that link, you get to watch a short video or something really compelling, 60 seconds, because none of us have an attention span for <laughs> anything beyond that. <laughs> and then you're offered, you know, here are a couple of tech-enabled ways that we can help you make that change. Change is hard, right? Mm -hmm. 
Do you want to change your diet? Do you want to change your activity level? Here's a program for each of those, you know, online coaching, you know, if you get a wearable and it'll connect to this and then a, you know, digital assistant will help give you encouragement and coach you through it. Here's a continuous glucose monitor. We're going to mail it to you. You know, do you want that? Yes. Click. You get a continuous glucose monitor sent to your home. You wear it. It starts giving you insight to how is your body reacting to different foods you eat, right? So there's all this stuff we can do on the consumer side, but we need to connect it back to the health system to that lab test you had done. And then on the physician side, giving them the insight to here's Albert who had this lab test, who was offered these options and kind of defining personas. Like he's the guy who's taking the bull by the horns on this, right? He got a CGM, he signed up for coaching. They look at your next test and they're like, you're an activated, engaged consumer of your own health. I'm putting you in this low risk category. They get a notification on somebody else who had the same lab test as you, didn't engage with any of those options offered. They may put them in a higher risk stratification. We got to follow up on this person because they're not likely to make the change without our help. And they're likely to walk through the door a year from now and have progressed. So that's just kind of a hypothetical scenario there. But I think we're going to see that consumerization of healthcare, empowering all of us as consumers to take more control over our health. But we've got to have the connectivity to the provider. They've got to be our partner in that. First of all, I did not actually know that there was a blood glucose monitor that looks at it all the time. Um, mm-hmm. Is that real or is that something you are hoping it comes forward? No, 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 that is that is real. Our, our platform connects to those. Um, we bring that data. How does it work? You don't have to, you don't have to take your blood. Like it, it, it just works. How does it work? You don't, you don't have to prick your finger. It has a little filament that goes under the skin. You don't even feel it. I wore two of them in March to a trade show. Um, it was fascinating. I live in Atlanta, like the land of Coca-Cola. The worst thing I did during those two weeks was drink a regular Coca-Cola. <laughs> My blood sugar went crazy. Yeah. Yeah, but it's like the sensor's stuck on your skin. You can wear it on your arm. You can wear it on your abdomen. Huh. It has a tiny filament, like the size of a hair that's going under the skin. Is it self, like self-applied? Do you need a doctor to apply it? Doctor needs to prescribe it. Pretty soon we'll have over-the-counter options for these. Huh. And it connects to an app on your phone and you can sit there and like learn cause and effect. You know, how does exercise affect my blood glucose? How does food, particular foods affect my blood glucose? It's really awesome technology. When you describe that, that's what I was kind of thinking. I, like most people, know what's good for me. I think most people know what's good for them, but I suffer from, I would say, what most people suffer from, which is I like eating good food, right? <laughs> so that, I mean, that's, that's in general the biggest, biggest problem, I would say, between you know, people with disease states and people without, is that they, for whatever reason, they can't separate that. I'll, I'll just interrupt to say, like, but we are all individuals. And so knowing that sort of taking that generalization to how do things affect you as an individual and your physiology is a really important thing. Because if you and I were to each wear one of those and eat all the same things and drink all the same things, our bodies would actually respond differently. Yeah. And that's a really important education. That's, that's 100% correct. I think about how if someone was, you know, let's say, like you said, a little bit more proactive and wanting to say, hey, I'm going to get this under control with myself. Constantly, for me, I know for me, constantly having like every time I eat, like I'm, I got some Brussels sprouts here with sriracha honey. I haven't finished it, but like that's all I got for lunch. I would want to see my blood sugar, like how does it react? And versus like if I eat a sandwich or drink a soda and seeing those things, and I'm thinking about like, hey, if I had an alerting system 
that said, hey, you've you've crossed your blood sugar limits three out of the last four days or four days in a row. Like imagine getting those alerts for myself. It's something that I think I could I would be very appreciative of. And I think I could change that. And then for those who maybe feel like they need some more support, I could I can 100 percent seeing like doctors being able to say like, hey, on top of the alerting system, them giving me a call or they're, the nurse giving me a call and me like, hey, listen, buddy, <laughs> you, what are you on a rager? Are you on vacation? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. And, and if they have the other context around your health, right, yeah. they know what other health conditions that individual has. I don't know if you've talked on this show about social determinants of health, but sort of all of that, you know, socioeconomic data that we know has a huge impact on health as well. Yeah. I know it's got a huge impact. Yeah. yeah. And so they need systems that take into account all of that data and then sort of surface the insight to them. So here's this patient, you know, who is at risk for type two diabetes, has these other comorbidities or, you know, other diagnoses. And here's sort of their social determinants data based on, you know, what kind of insurance do they have? Where do they live? You know, what's their, you know, demographic? then you can really start to help them dedicate the right resources to the right patients to sort of optimize the outcome. I totally agree. Uh, the one of the things that when, so for our audience, we identified before the show, Lucienne and I both attended Emory. I already said she did it way better than I did. I mean, I went there, but I wouldn't say it did great. But one of the things we learned in school was how socioeconomic environmental factors are a massive influence on health outcomes. I remember we did a research paper about what is the density of vegetable availability in like urban areas. And I mean, I remember reading this article about how like Detroit does, has no grocery stores, like inner city, Detroit has no grocery stores. So if you were a person who is there and let's say you are, like we said, we're talking about diabetes still, it is senseless for someone to tell them you got to eat more fruits and vegetables. Right. It's like you have to give me a plan or something that I have access to right. because otherwise it's not it's not really an option. I mean, we've actually built into workflows before the avail the ability for the clinician to like prescribe that, right? And eat more fruits and vegetables, but actually send the patient a text message with all of the farmers markets that accept SNAP benefits. Right, because you got to make it actionable. You you have to help them connect the dots. You can't yeah. just say eat fruits there and vegetables. You You're like, well, there are no stores that sell them, and I can't afford them. But if you say, hey, it's your local metro stop on Wednesdays. There's a farmers market that accepts EBT. Right, then that becomes something that they can actually take action on. Yeah, that's it. That's it. It's something that someone can actually reasonably do, given their environment and their social or, or everything around them. So when you think about this, like brain or this intelligence that can possibly gather this information and give these recommendations or just become a pathway for doctors to deliver this information. What has been, I guess, the biggest challenge for you or one of the you know, surprising challenges, technical challenges of building this system out? Because it looks like, you know, you got the vision for it. You understood what it was, physician side. But then comes the fun part that we love talking about IT vision, yeah. which is actually building it, right? Which is, which is full of full of things that you usually did not expect. Uh, I've never met someone who said that they built a product in like, you know, a couple of days and it was exactly as they envisioned. What are some of the big challenges? Because you are integrating systems that for the longest time kind of didn't really integrate well together. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and that's what I was going to say. 
you know, when we first built a product, it was a standalone product. It was a cloud-based, web-based product. And the feedback we got was, we love your product. You know, I can't possibly use this at scale if it doesn't integrate into my existing electronic health record system. Mm. Not just data, but the experience has to be integrated, right? I want to be single sign-on in the same window. I don't want to know your product exists. <laughs> I just want you to make my existing product better. That was important feedback from the market. And that took years, years of work for us to accomplish that. And we're still doing that work. That's what we all talk about interoperability in healthcare. And it's taken the government coming in and passing laws and now Office of National Coordinator and others sort of putting in place penalties if these systems don't you know, play nicely with each other because there were a lot of incentives for people to not share health data for health systems not to make their health data open because it makes it easier for you to take your business elsewhere, right? Switch from one health system to another. Mm -hmm. For the electronic health record companies to not make the data easily portable. So that has been, you know, probably the most interesting and exciting part of our journey, as well as the most frustrating <laughs> part of our journey. But it is, it's really at the core of what we do now, right? Of like that differentiator that we have put in the work and figured it out of how to make all of this data and the analytics and insights around it available to clinicians where they need it, which is on that one screen they're looking at. I would have never guessed it would have been this hard, but we've stuck with it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, how did you attack it? We've talked to some of the different, you know, like uh, when I think about some of the previous health guests we've had, we had one of the co-founders of TruePill on and talking about like, hey, at the physician level, like you will not believe these systems, how, how they just don't want to talk. And like you couldn't get prescription data easily. And so how did you go about attacking it? Was it like a strategic attack where you said, these are the health record systems that we can get to the most physicians or the most patients? Or was it more like, hey, this is what we can do. And was like, hey, let's line them up and you know line these problems up and knock them down one by one as we can, because it's going to be such a long haul. Like it doesn't need to strategy. It's like, let's just get these, let's start getting some in. So there has been what I refer to as sort of this policy work that's been done. There's, there's been consensus over the past, you know, that's built over the past, I'd say six years or really 10 years around something called fire, which is fast healthcare in our ability resource. But it's like the industry decided on an API standard that everybody would use. Oh, that's great. And that's kind of a, yeah, kind of a boring concept in any other industry, but a really big deal in healthcare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I tell people outside of healthcare, they're like, that is the most mundane thing. And I'm like, but you have no idea how revolutionary this was in healthcare that they could agree on an API that everybody would use. And it's not just electronic health records, right? It is CDC, FDA, you know, everybody is now aligning behind this. Mm -hmm. So we took a bet on that really early. We were like, that concept makes sense. We're going to bet on that horse. That's where this is going to go. And then we kind of saw who else was stepping up. So some of the big electronic health record companies for Cerner, then Epic signed up. They opened up an API and they built a marketplace. Oh, wow. And so we you know, spent two years architecting our app to comply with all of that and meet all of their standards. And then none of their customers wanted to buy that for another two years. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, eventually we got there to the point of market adoption where we are today. Yeah, that is awesome stuff. Yeah, the for those for those listening, Cerner and Epic are like the biggest medical operating systems. Like this, they're like 
They're another huge, yeah. huge. Company. They're over fifty percent of the market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if they they had jumped on this API standard, then everything else typically they can lead the charge a little bit and make the moves. For yourself, when you think about like innovation, how you're going to keep building because this space is always going to have, you know, medical breakthroughs that are going to change the way patients are treated. You're gonna, so that's going to change the information. You're going to have systems that keep needing to be upgraded because medical systems, for the longest part, really, not the actual care side. It's like the operation side, which is where all this information lives, has long been. You know, we've heard this industry is much slower. Like, right? and there's also regulatory things that are in, in place. What is your vision for yourself and your company? Like, how will you continue to tackle these things? Because probably at every step of the way, every day, every month, something. It's going to change. That's just the fact of your business. Like something's changing all the time. So how do you build a team that I guess can handle that level of change? And I think that's our hope, right? That it keeps changing because it needs to keep changing to make it better because there's so much room for improvement. So I think knowing what our swim lane is and that, you know, has really crystallized for us over recent years that, you know, we are a workflow company. We build products that help optimize the way healthcare is delivered in terms of you know, technology to support that clinical workflow. So if that's our swim lane, then you know, one big part is what we were just talking about, interfacing with these you know, electronic health record and other systems and making that data exchange optimal. So that continues to grow and the sort of support for fire continues to grow and, and we have to keep up with that. At the beginning of the program spoke about medical devices, right? We're going to see a ton of innovation there. I mean, I've seen the coolest technologies that you hold up your smartphone and the camera is going to be able to read your blood pressure and your pulse ox and your oxygen in your blood and your heart rate. And that's amazing, right? It's going to take a bit. There's a lot of regulatory hoops to get through, but, you know, we want to support that kind of innovation as it comes down. AI and machine learning and all of that of how do we better and better support clinical decision-making while still allowing for that important human element. So, you know, I think of us as a platform and the onus is on us to continue to deliver the best experience for our end users and then the support of all of these other technologies that are going to keep advancing as well. Yeah, no doubt about it. You know, for a lot of us, because we're on the you know, patient side. The reality is most of, you know, most people are on the patient side. We're not on the the, the physician side. Mm-hmm. We just think of like, hey, we just want better. Everyone wants better care. Everyone wants more cost-effective care, right? Everyone wants simpler, easier experiences. I think those are all things that are given. And some of the things you just talked about, which are like being more proactive, getting as the innovation pace of innovation changes in IoT. Like I always talk about, I always joke with everyone that Theranos, while it was a crooked company. The concept is beautiful, which is, can there be at-home testing that sends information back to my primary care physician, tells them enough about me that where I can be more proactive, I guess, in any disease state. And I think about, and I actually think about this during the pandemic when they were talking about how people were talking about wastewater, how wastewater detection could detect Mm -hmm. the presence of COVID-19. And I was thinking, man, like I know urine and stool samples are like a real thing, obviously quite invasive to collect. No one wants to provide them. No one wants to really collect them. Yeah. Could the future hold toilets that can sense that stuff and send it back? Oh, I've seen those. We've had those companies come to us that want to work with us, right? It's like smart toilets, right? And they're sensing is urine is passing by the sensor. It's, it's, detecting glucose and other things. So that's amazing. The other part of, you know, what does this look like in the future is we've had this explosion of awareness around the concept of remote patient monitoring and telemedicine. 
none of those technologies were actually new during COVID. It's just that- They were forced to be used. <laughs> yeah, they were forced to be used. And I actually think we should stop talking about virtual care versus in-person care and remote monitoring of like, that is the new face of healthcare. All of us that have experienced it have experienced the benefits of like, I don't have to drive across town and take half a day off of work, park, wait in a waiting yeah. room, you know, wait in an exam room, the whole thing. Then pay for the parking and getting to that optimal point of what can be done at home, right? I get the kit mailed to me to do the blood test that then uploads the results. And then I have a virtual visit with my doctor who has that data, has the data from my home, you know, continuous glucose monitor we were talking about. The important part of that, I can have a video call to talk with them about what our plan is. That's the human element of care that we need to focus on optimizing. Your concept and what you talked about before, like the preventative care, like that's where I see, that's where I, I hope definitely that in the next 10 years, that's where it's really going to revolutionize. I think IoT, these systems that you, that Remedy is a part of, I see preventative care becoming a more prominent part of our lives because I forget which physician said this, it's probably can't be attributed to just one, but someone talked about, hey, the worst part about heart attacks is like typically the first sign is the heart attack, meaning you didn't get tested. Mm -hmm. You didn't know your blood pressure. You didn't know. So like for a lot of people, the first time they know that their heart is compromised is when they get a heart attack. And if we could have systems to share that and our doctors, like you said, preemptively know that, that could fundamentally change the way these outcomes they just go down. They, they just won't go down because you'll be able to talk to your patients sooner and say, hey, you're heading down the wrong path. I look at our job as, you know, we've got to build the technologies that make this you know, accessible from an affordability point of view, secure because cybersecurity and healthcare is a really big deal and scalable, right? And we've got to build technologies that offer all of that to doctors. I mean, doctors just want to practice medicine. And, you know, I think it's the reason a lot of people don't leave medicine to work on tech, right? Because they care so much about the mission of their job that they're willing to put up with <laughs> really frustrating things about healthcare. We've got to all keep pushing to make that better. If we make it better for the doctors, it makes it better for the patients. If we make it better for the patients, it makes it better for the doctors. So it's sort of a, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy there. Listen, Lucienne, it was awesome having you on as a guest. Thanks for sharing some of the things you're doing at Remedy. I love the fact that you're doing something on the physician's side. Uh, it makes complete sense the way you described it, that physicians do spend most of their time caring for patients. So therefore, they're not really on the software side to help build better systems to improve their ability to provide care. So it's awesome to hear these things happening. But before you go... I want our audience to get to know you a little better. It is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Lucien, this is where we ask you questions, sometimes about work, sometimes about outside of work, but short, quick answers. Let our audience get to know you a little bit better. Are you ready? Okay. All right. You described yourself earlier as a big geek or you were. What was something, what is a geeky hobby that you had or have? <laughs> Um, just today, I love, like you can see behind me, I love a whiteboard and multicolor markers and <laughs> <laughs> that'll never, that will never leave me. Okay. Does that mean you have like, uh, you know, back you, you use like, like colored those arrow. I always wondered who uses them that like their arrow pointer, like posting notes, like they got like colored arrow pointers. Do you use those? Back in the day, back in the day in college, I would copy over all my notes every evening from every class and color code them. That's pretty intense. Okay. Because <laughs> you're a pretty smart person. You went to, like, 
<laughs> That's pretty intense. I'm Winter Emery. I'm, I'm familiar with Atlanta. What is a fun part about Atlanta that maybe people don't know about? Fun part of Atlanta people don't know about. Yeah, you can't say um, the world of Coca-Cola. <laughs> my husband was the project manager for building the new world of Coca-Cola, but that's not fun to anybody <laughs> but me. So, I, oh, you know, so a fun part about Atlanta is the Beltline. So they took some old railroad tracks uh, because Atlanta was a railroad town way yep. back when and converted them into walking and biking paths. And then there's been this enormous amount of development, restaurants and things along the Beltline that circles the city. And our office is actually on the Beltline. Is it fully connected? Fully connected. You can go all the way around the city. Oh, dang. That is pretty cool. Have you ever attempted to do that? Because that's pretty long. It's like probably like 40 miles or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I have not done the full loop, but and there are different parks it runs through and connects to as you um, go around the different quadrants of the city. No doubt. What do you like to do outside of work? So I have four sons. Um, so I basically parent and work. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I love to travel and I love to travel with my family. Where is some place that you would recommend a family person to go? One of the best vacations we took in recent years was to Norway, northern Norway. Went to one of the fjords. Oh, really? Yeah, rented an Airbnb on a fjord in the north of Norway. Highly recommend it. That is epic. So it sounds like you're a bit of a nature lover. You've already mentioned the fjords. You already mentioned uh, the railway, the parks. Are you a big yeah. outdoors person? It sounds like you are. I am. That's that's one of my other habits is gardening. I love um, sort of my get my mind off of work. I can go dig a hole and <laughs> I can think about something and it's a project I can start and I can finish as opposed to many aspects of my daily work life. What kind of things do you grow? Blueberries. You can grow a lot of blueberries in Georgia. Who knew, right? I mean, I have no idea. <laughs> um, flowers, hydrangeas, all those good Southern plants. A lot of times when we meet tech leaders, they're they're builders and creators. You know, it sounds like you do that with gardening. Do you do you have any other hobbies that involve building or creation? I really like renovating houses. Like not me personally doing the renovation, but we've done that several times, you know, buying a house, having a vision for how you can transform it. And um, I love that aspect and kind of seeing, you know, what you can create um, and turn it into the home and environment you want. Listen, I think my wife has the same same deal because we bought a new house. The first thing she said was, you know, we should add this. I was like, we just bought this place. <laughs> yeah. Well, Lisa, it was awesome having you on the show. Thanks for sharing your background. Thanks for sharing how you came about the, the you know, the problem to begin to solve with the solution like Remedy. I'm always a big proponent of health tech. Happy to have you on the show, uh, you know, and we want to see you succeed because if you succeed, I get better care. And that's how, I, that's how I, I have a special place in my heart for all health tech. It's awesome having you on the show. Thanks so much. Good to be here.